Good morning. Just a few quick observations as we, as we begin. Um, the first two are a wee bit trivial. Did everyone notice the you in honor in the second song we sang this morning? Warm my heart. That was wonderful to see. And just putting that out there. Um, secondly, um, the Harrises, um, Christian and Karen have attended here, I think, for six or seven years. I have never seen them sitting anywhere but here. This is a seismic shift, brother, to see you back there. But anyway, I told you they were trivial, but observations nevertheless. Uh, third, far more important observation. The Hewitts, Alan and uh, Diane and Carl, just here, just the arms up. Uh, they're moving back to Pennsylvania, which is where they had come from some years ago, moving back at the end of the month uh, due to other commitments. You've worked it out. This will be your last, you're pretty sure this will be your last Sunday here. Well, it's a good one. We've got the fellowship lunch. And so uh, take the opportunity to, to speak with, uh, with the Hewitts and, uh, and wish them well in their transition. And uh, as they sell their house here, still looking to sell it, and as they look for a church up there, and pray the Lord would go before them preparing, preparing the way. Uh, take God's Word now and turn with me to the book of John. You can go to chapter 12, and we will get there in a, in a few moments. I want to begin... Uh, with a few words from a church historian named Roger Nickel. Uh, he writes the following. By the end of the, 14th, by the, end of the 15th, 15th century, this was the 1400s, the church was a cesspool of iniquity. It's well put. It was a cesspool of iniquity. People did not know how to remedy the situation. But God raised up to his glory. Men who proclaimed the truth of his sovereign grace. These men had little money, little power, and little influence. One was a portly little monk in Wittenberg. Another was a frail little professor in Geneva. And a third was a ruddy but lowly little man in Scotland. What could they do? By the power of God, they shook the world. And Roger Nickel, of course, is referring to the Reformation. And on October 31st of this month, we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. As Grace Community Church, we have started the celebrations early uh, in our study of Galatians, right? A book that was front and center uh, at the time of the Reformation, and was very pivotal in formulating Martin Luther's thinking, and very important when it comes to the preaching of Martin Luther. And so we've been celebrating the Reformation for the past few months, but this month we are going to take it up a notch, all right? And you have behind me on the screen five Latin expressions. So here we go. Sola. Scriptura, Scripture, alone, the Bible, alone, right? Sola, gratia, grace, that's grace, alone. Sola, fide, faith, alone. Solus, Christus, 
Christ alone and soli Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. No reformer ever walked around chanting those five Latin phrases. They just didn't do it. None of them ever produced a written work expounding precisely on these five phrases. But these five phrases over time became representative of the main theological position espoused by the reformers at the end of the 1400s right through the 1500s. You've guessed it. This month, we're going to look at each of these solas. How many Sundays are there in October? Oh, it's providential, folks. How many Sundays in October? There are five. And so we're going to take one of these each Sunday, and then we'll bring our celebrations to a climax then on October 29th, right? As we celebrate together uh, Reformation Sunday and uh, celebrate in particular Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses to that church door in the city of Wittenberg on October 31st, 1517. So today we begin with what? Sola Scriptura. And what I want to do is basically answer three questions, but I want to set the stage for these three questions by going back in time. Back in time. It's the year 1414. And a council has been convened in the city of Constance, which is located on the border between Switzerland and Germany. And this council will last for four years, 1414 to 1418. It's a council of all the leading lights within the Roman Catholic Church. The council is convened for a number of reasons. Foremost, the council is convened to deal with the issue of the Pope. Why? Because in 1414, there are three popes. Did you realize that? There are actually three popes in 1414. And so the Roman Catholic Church decides it's time. Well, we really only need one. So we better get it together and ask the other two to step down. And so they called this council. It took them four years to resolve the issue. There were other issues going on. And one that is important for us this morning to understand is this. The council was convened to deal with two priests, thorns in the flesh, stone in your shoe, so to speak, two irritants, irritating priests uh, within the Roman Catholic Church. The first, and a slide should come up behind me here, is John Wycliffe. Is he there? He's already dead at this point. He's been dead 30 years by the time the council is convened. But John Wycliffe, while alive, was the leading professor at Oxford University, probably the leading institution, certainly in Europe, if not the world, in the 1300s. John Wycliffe had serious issues with the Roman Catholic Church. And he published, for instance, a book called The Truth of Sacred Scripture, in which he penned the following, the Bible alone. Did you hear it? What is that? That's sola scriptura. The Bible alone is the supreme law that is to rule the church, the state, and the Christian life. Without human traditions and statutes, fueled by that conviction, Wycliffe and his followers, known as the Lollards, 
They translated the Bible into what language? English. Translated into English. And uh, this put him on the wrong side of the authorities. Three times they arrested him and tried him for heresy. Each time he managed to evade conviction. I think it was on the third occasion, as he stood trial, there was a terrible thunderstorm, thunderstorm which convinced 90% of the inhabitants of the city of London that God was actually on Wycliffe's side. He died peacefully while celebrating the Lord's Supper. He suffered a stroke, died peacefully. But 30 years later, at the Council of Constance, the church decided they needed to deal definitively with Wycliffe and with his followers. And so they ordered that back in England, that his body be exhumed and burned. His ashes were then dumped into the river Swift, which, as one historian notes, conveyed his ashes into the main ocean. And thus the ashes of Wycliffe were the emblem of his doctrine, which now is dispersed over the entire world. Now you're going to see another slide here. The church needs to deal with a second priest, John Huss. He's not dead. He's very much alive. At some point he has stumbled upon Wycliffe's writing. And he becomes convinced of what Wycliffe is espousing in terms of the Bible alone and in terms of salvation by grace alone. He's a professor too at Charles University, the city of Prague. And so, and so John Huss, he actually lives in what was known as Bohemia. That would be modern day Czech Republic. So we've gone from the British Isles now right across continental Europe to the Eastern Europe. And he writes on one occasion, we pay for confession, we pay for mass, we pay for the sacrament, we pay for indulgences, we pay for burials, we pay for funeral services, and we pay for prayers. The very last penny, which an old woman has hidden in her bundle for fear of thieves or robbery, will not be saved. The villainous priest will grab it all. That put him on the wrong side of ecclesiastical authorities, as you can imagine. And so they deal with Wycliffe, a dead priest at the Council of Constance. And they deal, secondly, with an alive priest, John Huss, at the Council of Constance. And they dealt with him by burning him alive. Burned at the stake. According to legend. This might be true. I don't know if it's true. I certainly wish... It were true. I don't know for certain. According to legend. Well, this isn't legend. Hus means what? Goose. That's the meaning of the word. Here's the legend. That as Hus was taken to the stake, he said to his accusers, Today, you will roast a lean goose. But a hundred years from now, you will hear a swan sing, whom you will leave unroasted, and no trap or net will catch him for you. Almost 100 years later, a portly German monk rummaging in a library comes across a book of Huss's sermons. And the priest is Martin Luther. Wycliffe to Huss to Luther. 
And by the time Luther stands before the emperor of the German Empire, the emperor of the German Empire, uh, Charles V, at the Diet of Worms in 1521, uh, sola scriptura is firmly fixed in his mind. The Bible alone, to such a degree that he can declare, whatever does not have its origin in the scriptures is surely from the devil himself. Three questions then. Three questions. We want to wrestle with. There's the historical context. Three questions that we want to answer as we seek the relevance, the extreme relevance of this doctrinal motif for our own day. The first question is this, what exactly is sola scriptura? That's the place to begin because most evangelicals do not understand what sola scriptura is. Most evangelicals believe that when we say the Bible alone, we are affirming the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture. We do believe in the inspiration of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. We affirm that all the writers of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit, whereby what they produced when they put pen to paper is indeed the breath, if you like, the Word, if you like, the inspired Word of God. The inspiration of Scripture, we do believe that. That is not what sola scriptura is about. No one disagreed with that at the time of the Reformation. No one disagreed with that. The issue was not over the inspiration of the Bible. The issue was over the authority and sufficiency of the Bible. There were three main views. For the Catholics, for the Catholics, this question of where, where does the authority lie? Their answer to that question was this, the church. The authority lies in the church. They did not deny that the Bible was the inspired word of God. But what were they teaching? This really crystallized. Their thinking crystallized, crystallized from about the year 1100 right through to the year 1400. They believed that there were actually two fonts, if you like, founts of inspired teaching. There were the written words. So the Bible is the inspired word of God. And there was the oral tradition. And it too was the inspired word of God. And so you had these two things, these two founts of truth. The Bible on the one hand, scripture, and tradition on the other, both inspired by God. And both ultimately under the Pope and his bishops. And authority lays with the Pope and the bishops to interpret these two inspired sources of truth. That was the Catholic position. As the reformers pushed back, they gathered at the Council of Trent in 1546 and ratified their position officially, saving truth and rules of conduct are contained in the written books and in the unwritten traditions, God is the author of both. That is the official Roman Catholic position. And the authority rests in the church, the Pope and his bishops, to interpret these two inspired words. There was a second group at the time of the Reformation. They were known as the radicals, or whom we might know as the Anabaptists. Today, 
the, if you like, those who, who draw their, their heritage, their lineage back to the Anabaptists, although they look very different from the Anabaptists today, they would be the Mennonites, right? The Hutterites, the Amish, and a few other groups. That's where they come from. Well, the radicals, they distanced themselves from the Roman Catholic Church. They said that tradition isn't inspired. As a matter of fact, that tradition is unimportant. We don't need tradition at all. Uh, we, we don't need any collective wisdom from 1,400 years of church history. No, authority lies in the individual. And it's my responsibility to take up the Bible, yes, the inspired Word of God, and to study it and discern it for myself. And on top of that, I am now to seek new revelations. I am to seek an internal voice. I am to look for God to work inside me, telling me what the Bible means, not only what the Bible means, but imparting to me new revelations. And so it was a very common phrase among the radicals. I hold Holy Scripture to be above all human treasures but not as high as the Word of God. Did you hear that? I hold Holy Scripture to be above all human treasures, but not as high as the Word of God. Because the Word of God is something different. The Word of God is something I experience. The Word of God is something I hear. The Word of God is something that takes place between the Holy Spirit and me. And you see, authority does not lie in the church. Authority lies in me, an individual. The third group, you put away the Catholics, you put away the radicals. The third group, obviously, the Reformers. And what do the Reformers teach? You're both wrong. You're both dead wrong. They were opposed to the Catholics. That tradition is not inspired. No way is it inspired. The Word of God alone is inspired. And we know that is true because when we compare the Bible and tradition, there are all these contradictions, aren't there? Scripture says that Jesus alone was sinless. What does tradition say? Mary was sinless. That's not in the Bible. That's a contradiction. Scripture alone says Christ is the only mediator. What does tradition say? Mary's a co-redeemer. Where's that in the Bible? That's a contradiction. The Scripture says that we as Christians are saints and priests. But tradition says what? That these saints and priests are, are a specific class among believers. Well, that contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. And on and on and on and on it went. Contradiction upon contradiction upon contradiction upon contradiction. Well, how can they both be the inspired Word of God? If they disagree at so many junctures, that makes no sense at all. No, it is the Bible alone that is the inspired Word of God. We do recognize, the Reformers did recognize the importance of tradition. The reformers never elevated the individual as if he or her were some sort of island to himself or herself. No, they recognize the importance of tradition. They recognize it is important to understand what the church has believed historically and collectively. And so they distanced themselves from the radicals who completely rejected tradition. That's an important lesson for us today, isn't it? Because the reformers actually believed when they espoused sola scriptura, they were not putting forth something new. They actually affirmed, no, th this isn't new. This is what the early church believed. What the early church believed was this, that the Bible alone is the inspired word of God and the collective witness of the church is important for interpreting the word of God, which alone is inspired. That is what the reformers taught. We need to hear that today. Oh, we need to hear that today. Why? 
Because the number of people running around who confuse sola scriptura with strident individualism, they are not the same thing. Well, sola scriptura, the Bible alone, that means me, myself, and I, I can simply pick up the Bible and interpret it, and my interpretation trumps the Apostles' Creed. My interpretation trumps the Nicene Creed. My interpretation trumps all of the Reformed confessions that came out of the Reformation. It's all about me, and sola scriptura stops, ends, begins right here with me. That's why we have a plethora of churches and denominations today, don't we, that think they know the truth and yet are a long way from historic Protestant convictions. I know sola scriptura has been misunderstood. Yes, the Bible alone is the inspired Word of God, but that is not to say that it is unimportant or unnecessary to interpret this Bible in the light of 2,000 years of church history. What has the church said? And we should be unbelievably nervous around the individual who thinks they can just look at the Bible, draw their conclusion, this is it, and yet contradict what the church has taught for 2,000 years. Very nervous around that individual. That's not sola scriptura. That is strident individualism. The Reformers taught the Bible alone is the Word of God. Tradition, no. But we do not interpret Scripture as lone islands divorced from the collective historic witness of the church. And all of this was affirmed in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which states it beautifully. The whole counsel of God is either expressly set down in Scripture or by good and necessary consequences may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit, the radicals, or by traditions of men, the Catholics. They were opposing these two ideas on the part of the Catholics who elevated oral tradition as the inspired word of God. The Reformers said no. For the radicals, the Anabaptists who believed authority resides with me and I've got an open telephone line with God and he speaks to me and reveals all sorts of truth to me, they said no. It is the Bible alone that is the inspired word of God and we dare not add anything to it, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. That is sola scriptura. The second question I want to answer is this. Why do we affirm sola scriptura? What is the biblical argument for it? I'm not even going to give you the tip of the iceberg. I'm going to give you the tip of the tip of the iceberg. All right? And we're going to take a journey through John's writings. And we're going to make eight stops. And I'm going to give you eight statements, eight scripture references and this is the beginning of this great doctrine, sola scriptura. And I pray the Spirit of God impresses the reality of these truths upon us. To make this very easy for you, as I go through each of these, Teresa is going to bring them up here on the screen. So you'll hear them from me and you'll see them there. I'm going to go to different passages in John to read. You can try to flip along and follow 
the precise texts I read as I go, or you can just sit there and listen. Here is stop number one. We're answering the question, why do we affirm sola scriptura? Stop number one. Jesus communicates what the Father taught him. Jesus communicates what the Father taught him. Hear the words of John 12, verses 49 and 50. I have not, Jesus is speaking, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. Here's the commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father told me. What is the significance of that? The significance is this. As Jesus speaks here on earth, as he communicates, he is sharing what he heard the Father say within the eternal life of the Trinity. His words, his words are God's words. Here's the second stop I want to take. It's in John 6, 63. Here it is. Jesus' words are full of the Spirit and life. John 6, 33. I'm reading from the ESV. John 6, 63, sorry, not 33. It is the Spirit, again, Jesus is speaking, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you, the, the words, the words that I have spoken to you are Spirit and life. I suggest to you that it's not Spirit and life, it is the Spirit and life, because it is still the Spirit in view who is mentioned in the first half of the verse. It is the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are the Spirit and life. And so the words that I have heard in the eternal life of the triune God that the Father has given to me, I have now spoken to you. And please understand, these words are full of the Holy Spirit and life. The third stop is this. Still in John 6, Jesus communicates the Father's words in ordinary human language. John 6, verse 68 Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so Jesus has received these words from the Father. He speaks these words. They are full of the Holy Spirit and life. And he communicates these words, the Father's words, in ordinary human language to the extent that the disciples understand it. You have the words of eternal life, declares Simon Peter. Stop number four, over to John 17. We'll be here for a couple of stops. Number four, Jesus' words are received and believed by the disciples. John 17, 8 
for I have given them, Jesus speaking, I have given them, the disciples, the words. Remember, he's praying to the Father. I, I, Jesus, have given them, the disciples, the words that you, Father, gave me. And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. The fifth stop, still in John 17. Jesus promises that others will come to believe the same words. 20th verse. He's still praying to the Father. I do not ask for these only, my disciples, the immediate band, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so Jesus receives the words which he heard from the Father. These words are full of the Holy Spirit and life. The Lord Jesus makes these words known in ordinary human language. The disciples understand, receive, and believe these words. Not only that, the disciples communicate those words so that others will come to believe. He's referring to us. He's referring to the history of the church. All who have come to believe in those words words which the apostles have spoken, they have spoken them because they received them from Jesus and because Jesus received them from the Father. The sixth stop is this, back in chapter 14. Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will help the disciples remember what they've heard. John 14, 26, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will, he is speaking to the disciples. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said, all those words, all those words I heard my father speak. He will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Another stop, seventh in John 16. Jesus anticipates. He anticipates not only, it's really a dual role on the part of the Holy Spirit. Not only that the Holy Spirit will help the disciples remember, but he anticipates the future communication of the Father's words through the Holy Spirit to the disciples. John 16, verse, 20, verse 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Words, what he has heard from his Father, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, that's Pentecost, he will guide you, speaking to the disciples, into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. Still the words of the Father. The words that the Father has given to his Son. The Son has given what He could give at that time. He now promises that the Spirit will give the rest. What the Father has said in the eternal life of the triune God. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me for He will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that He will take what is mine and declare it to you. Are you with me? One more stop. Not in John's gospel account, but now in his first epistle. 1 John chapter 1, the disciples record 
the Father's words in writing. 1 John 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now notice the next phrase. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Did you get the eight stops? It is but the tip of the tip of the iceberg, but they do convey, when we take them all together, they convey to us the essence of sola scriptura. Here it is. When we read or hear the Bible, we are hearing God's words. Oh, how important we get that. How important we defend that. How important we affirm it. That when we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, we are hearing the very words of God. Sola Scriptura. Nothing, again, nothing at any time is to be added to it. Whether by so-called new revelations of the Spirit, the radicals, or so-called traditions of men, the Catholics. That is the essence of sola scriptura. Here it is. I'll try to come at it from a different angle. My friend, if you want to hear the voice of God, there is only, only, only one way you can do so. You pick up this book and you read it. The very words of God. Here and nowhere else. Sola Scriptura. Therefore, this book alone possesses authority. Not the church, not the individual, but Scripture. And therefore, this book is all sufficient. The third question I want to ask is this. Why, why does Sola Scriptura matter? Why does it still matter 500 years later? Huge question. I've narrowed my response down to four points. Why this matters? So what? Why should we care? Sola Scriptura. Us, as professing Christians. Uh, us, those of us who belong, members of Grace Community Church. Here we are. 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Isn't this a dead issue? This is not a dead issue. As a matter of fact, I affirm this is the issue of issues that must be refought in our day. The doctrine of sola scriptura. Here are four reasons why I believe this. Number one, the doctrine of sola scriptura, it matters because it strengthens our confidence in the power of God's word. It strengthens our confidence in the power of God's word. 
Most evangelical churches today affirm sola scriptura in their statement of faith. They will not use the language sola scriptura, but it is what they are hinting at. But the sad reality is this. In affirming sola scriptura, what they mean by that is merely the inspiration of scripture. That's all they mean. Sola scriptura. The Bible is the inspired word of God. That is not the doctrine of sola scriptura. And the fact that they don't really believe in sola scriptura is made evident in what? That the Bible is kind of thrown over in a corner and they're trying this, that, and everything to follow God. And have adopted a host of methodologies and techniques and strategies and on and on and on it goes. All these things that are supposed to bring us closer to God and all the while, this book remains closed. Oh, yes, sola scriptura is the inspired word of God, but it is not the sufficient word of God. We need this, we need this, we need this, we need that. No, we don't, my friends. I, I, I always get embarrassed. I don't know why I get embarrassed. It happens once in a while if I'm a pastor's gathering. And some guy, he, he means well, and I, I never take issue with it. And I hum and awe and try to answer the question. But the question invariably comes in these pastor gatherings. What's your vision for the church? What's your strategy? What's your methodology? Who are you reading? And I, I turn crimson. I don't answer to any of those questions. I don't have any vision. I haven't adopted any methodology, and I certainly aren't reading any of those books. Why? Because I believe in the power of God's Word. This is our strategy, sola scriptura, for church growth. It is our strategy for evangelism. It is our strategy for sanctification. It's our strategy for discipleship, for dealing with broken marriages, wayward children, and substance abuse. It is our strategy for dealing with bereavement, persecution, rejection, and a host of other problems. Why? Why would I say that? Because these words are full of the Holy Spirit and life. The problem is not with the book. The problem is with us. The book is full of the Holy Spirit. These words are life. And this book must be front and center in the life of any believing Christian and certainly in the corporate life of God's people. Here's a second reason why sola scriptura matters. It challenges the mysticism that pervades contemporary evangelicalism. I think one of the biggest problems going today within the evangelical church and why, another reason why sola scriptura is so important, fundamental importance. It challenges the mysticism. I was going to say subtle mysticism. The reality is this. It's no longer subtle. It is blatant. The mysticism that pervades contemporary evangelicalism. What do I mean by mysticism? Simply this. The mystic actually believes they're hearing things from God without the Bible. The mystic actually believes, actually thinks that uh, revelation is something that happens inside them. Something happens inside me. And I discern it by discerning the gusts, my gusts of emotion. How I'm feeling today. Different senses. And they think this is the voice of God. The mystic actually believes that words, this book, while the inspired word of God, this, these words are actually a problem because they are an obstruction to my soul's bare communion with God. I just want, no, no, I don't need a, I heard someone say this recently, I don't need that mediator, the book. I just want bare communion with God. That is the cry of the mystic. My response is this. Words are absolutely essential to our relationship with God. There is no relationship with God apart from words. Jesus spoke the words. 
he heard from his father. Jesus proclaimed those words in discernible language. The disciples did not go looking for something else. They heard those words, understood those words, believed those words, therefore believed in Jesus. Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come. He promised his disciples he's going to come and he's going to do two things. He will help you remember my words, my words which I receive from the Father, but there are a lot more words, and he will reveal those words to you. That was not a promise given to us. That was a promise given to the apostolic band, the disciples. They received those words. They then wrote those words down. And those books of the New Testament, now compiled with the books of the Old Testament, constitute what? The Word of God. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, the, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Prophets, Old Testament, apostles, New Testament. There is no knowing God, communing with God, fellowshipping with God without language, without words, without God speaking to us. And we have all the words we could ever possibly need in this book, Sola Scriptura. We do not, oh please my friend, if you struggle with this, hear this please, give it some thoughtful consideration. We do not ascend to God by descending into ourselves, searching for some small, still, quiet voice in our emotions. That is not biblical spirituality. That is mysticism, and it has a stranglehold on evangelicalism in our day. It is everywhere. Sola Scriptura. No. If you want to hear God speak, you will only hear Him in one place. The words He has given to us, the Scriptures. We engage. We must engage Scripture with the mind. Saying with the psalmist, I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. There was a third reason why sola scriptura matters. I'm going to skip it for the sake of time. Let me give you the fourth, most important. This doctrine leads us to Christ. Sola scriptura leads us to Christ. It has been said, listen very carefully to this. Perhaps you've encountered something similar. It has been said. Christians are not those who believe in the Bible, but those who believe in Christ. Have you ever heard that? Christians are not those who believe in the Bible, propositional truth. They believe in Christ, a person. That is a false dichotomy, a false dichotomy. If these are his words, then to believe in the Bible is to believe in Christ. If these are his words, there is no possible way to believe in Christ other than believing in his words. It leads us, this doctrine leads us soundly, firmly, faithfully to Christ. If these are his words, then to believe in them is to believe in Jesus. They are his truths. They are His commands. They are His promises, His precepts, His assurances, His rebukes, His exhortations, His warnings. I will say it. 
they are his presence with us. His language, his words, this book. Oh, do you remember the disciples, the Christ's question to the disciples? Do you want to go away as well? Do you recall the response? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. How did they come to know that he is the Holy One of God? By receiving and believing his words. There is no other way. The book, this book alone, the inspired word of God, sola scriptura, all sufficient, has one great theme. And the theme is the Lord Jesus Christ. And there is no way apart from this book to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because however unpalatable it might be in our day, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself, has not spoken in any other way to any other person at any other time than hear his words revealed to us. My friends, that's the doctrine of sola scriptura. That is what the reformers were fighting for 500 years ago. I dare say we've wandered a wee way from it in our day those who are supposedly the heirs of the Reformation. How scandalized they would be if they were alive today to see what many professing evangelicals actually believe. No, if we want to hear God's voice, we will hear him in this book. And in these words, we will encounter the Holy Spirit and we will encounter eternal life because these words point us to Christ, our Heavenly Father. May it be so in our lives. We do pray that by your word you would speak to us powerfully, convictingly. That you would speak to us words of assurance, words of conviction, words of correction, words of exhortation. We pray that by your word you might perform and fulfill that perfect work in our lives, whereby you conform us to the likeness of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, our Father, that you would forgive us our sins this day. You have promised that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so as we look now to the emblems before us, the Lord's Supper, we pray that we might bask in the light of your forgiveness, the fact that you welcome us, welcome all who come to you through the shed blood and broken body of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so bless the word as it has been proclaimed this day. And bless now the Lord's Supper. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen.